This episode of The Better Business Show is brought to you in association with Nestle, the world's largest food and beverage company. Present in more than 190 countries and with more than 2,000 brands, Nestle is working hard to enhance quality of life and contribute to a healthier future for people all around the world. Check out nestle.com for more information. Yes, welcome to episode 61 of The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Uh, thanks for tuning in. This is a special edition of the show coming to you exclusively from Vevi in Switzerland, home to the world's biggest food business, uh, Nestle, to explore the subject of, you guessed it, the future of food. Uh, I'm nestled inside the huge HQ of Nestle here on the shore of Lake Geneva. And I'm here to attend a two-day event hosted by Nestle, of course, but it's an interesting one. Brings together so many different players who have uh, a vested interest in changing the world's food system. So you've got producers here, you've got farmers, you've got NGOs, you've got charities, uh, you've got entrepreneurs, and they're all here in the room to discuss the problems and to start to talk about some of the solutions that might be brought about together. Um, and these sorts of events, and this is the second time that, that Nestle has put on an event uh, like this, is really the, the starting point uh, for some of those sorts of conversations. Nestle has been around for a 150 years and it knows that it faces some massive problems in terms of the way its raw materials are being grown, in terms of the, the health impacts of, the, of its products that uh, it might easily stimulate, the you know, undernutrition, obesity, diabetes. These are certainly interesting times to be running a, a food company. Um, here's uh, Maggie Potato, Nestle's head of operations, who opened the event just now, explaining exactly why it stages these types of events. Our sense of purpose. It's about enhancing quality of life and contributing to a healthier future. So why we have this conference, it's actually for all of us, yourselves, non-governmental organizations, government stakeholders, uh, us as an industry and others, it, it is for us. It is for us to be aligned. It is for us to work together on a very important topic. And that very important topic is about nutrition. If you look at the nutritional needs of a growing population, we already have a challenge today. And we know that already today, we have 800 million people that are not nourished properly. And we have around 2 billion people that are obese or that not, that not have an adequate nutrition, are overweight or obese. And whilst looking at that, we also know how much nutrition is putting also a strain on environmental resources. So this is why we have this conference. And this is why this conference is important. And this is something we explored last week with Hampton Creek. And while it's harsh to describe the world's current food system as being broken, I think it's fair to say that the challenges it you know, faces and that are likely to only ramp up significantly in the coming, coming years are absolutely huge. Basically, we will need to meet the nutritional needs of a growing population. We could be 10 billion by 2050. And many people say that we'll need to double the amount of food by then. This is against a backdrop to make sure that the food 
we are eating is healthier, contains more protein, and we start to make more use of renewable materials. Plus, there is the stark reality of the environmental impact of agriculture, responsible for around 10% of all greenhouse gas gas emissions. Uh, And then there's the strain being placed on farmers everywhere by climate change, which, in case you're in any doubt, is absolutely huge. The pressure on water supplies, the more erratic and hard to predict weather patterns, the increased instances of drought or heavy rainfall. Um, and during the first session here in Vevey, uh, the always brilliant Tony Juniper set the scene brilliantly in a nutshell, um, pointing to the soil uh, beneath our feet as being both the problem and potentially the solution to the world's impending food crisis. Uh, he said, take a tablespoon of soil in the east of England, which is where Tony lives, uh, and you'll find six billion organisms in that tablespoon. Um, soil is where we, we find organic material, it holds water, it stores carbon, uh, you know, essentially keeping it from the atmosphere. And the organisms working within that organic material means it is recycling nutrients, fostering new plant growth. So when soils get damaged, he says, you know, eroded, over-farmed, you get this depletion of organic matter. And the soils just won't produce plants, crops, raw materials in the same way. And that, he says, poses a major threat to food security. Amazingly, one third of all agricultural soils have been degraded around the world. And so that biological recycling process has been replaced with chemicals and fertilisers helping to keep pace with global food demand. But that has come at a cost. We're all aware of the decline in bee populations. In fact, two-thirds of all pollinators are under threat because of a loss of biodiversity on land everywhere. Agricultural technology, the use of chemicals, has managed to damage the underpinning of agriculture. And that needs to change. And having spent many years studying that relationship between the natural and the human world, Tony Juniper is somebody that knows it's not an option to conserve natural systems, but a absolute necessity. But is it possible for farming systems to adapt to become more sustainable while having the productive capacity to match consumer demand for healthy and sustainable diets? We know chemicals work. That's why farmers are using them everywhere. Um, I caught up with another man at the forefront of sustainable agriculture to explore this situation, Patrick Holden, uh, a man that's been farming himself for the last 30 years uh, over in Wales. Um, but he's also the founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust. I started by asking him how we can tell how bad the situation actually is. Everyone understands that we're living beyond our means in planetary terms. We're in this fragile ecosystem at which we're uh, allegedly in in charge with stewardship responsibilities, Mm -hmm. and yet our resource consumption of natural capital of the planet exceeds its capacity to continue to nourish us. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, can we get our food systems inside the so-called planetary boundaries, which a a man called uh, Professor Johan Rockström has defined? And he's identified several areas where we are outside the planetary boundaries, namely greenhouse gas emissions, biodiversity, water, soil, and the use of nitrogen fertilizer. And in all these areas, we're living beyond our means, but what are we going to do about it? And the inconvenient truth is that getting our farming and food systems inside planetary boundaries is not going to be easy, partly because it requires major changes of farming practice, and also because at the moment, it's not profitable for farmers to change their methods in the way that mm-hmm. is needed. So that's what I was speaking about this, this, this morning. 
So when it comes to food and all that goes into producing food, how far outside of those boundaries are we right now? Are we not quite outside them yet, but we will be? Is that how it works? We're way outside, particularly in relation to uh, greenhouse gas emissions. A lot of the um, energy that's used in the world in one form or another, which contributes to atmospheric pollution, is coming from farming. And we're also a long way out. We're trashing the biodiversity of the planet and the old method of just fencing off the last bits of, you know, wilderness isn't working Mm. we're using fossil water at an alarming rate our soils are so depleted we've only got 60 to 100 years left of harvests depending on who who you're listening to Mm. and the nitrogen use which is one of the drivers of all this is way beyond the planetary boundaries and the problem is that i know from practical experience over 30 40 years that it is possible to farm in a different way which is what i've been doing in wales and bring the system inside planetary boundaries, but it won't make as much money um, as the other system, which is exploitative. And most farmers rightly, and food companies like Nestle, have to follow the best business case. So what are they to do? We need to make it profitable to do the right thing, not to do the wrong thing, which is presently the case. So where do you start in that? Because that's huge, isn't it? It is huge, but I think there's grounds for optimism. So just to give you one example I gave this morning, Farmers need to become stewards of soil carbon because what one of the consequences of industrial agriculture is we've released a lot of soil organic matter carbon into the atmosphere in the form of CO2, mm-hmm. but we can get it back if we change our farming practices. So imagine that the common agricultural policy, uh, of which we uh, are currently part but <laughs> may not be in the future, yeah. was to make sure that no funds that farmers got were received unless they were... Uh, increasing their soil organic matter, uh, that would then enable them to be more profitable if they adopted rotational farming practices with a fertility building element, which is grass and clover, which I was advocating this morning, than it is to currently farm the way they do, which is just crop after crop after crop. And if all the farmers of the world did that, we could take up to 100 parts per million of CO2 out of the atmosphere and put it back in the soil. Now, okay. that's a prize worth um, striving for. Yeah. So, so some of the solution comes in the form of policy. Some. What, what, what can the likes of big business, big food like Nestle do in, in helping that transition? Because they have a responsibility too and they have yeah. massive influence. They do. That's the point. So Nestle have big influence. They can encourage the research community to uh, enter a new partnership with the farmers, farmers like me, practitioners who know, may know what to do but can't do it at the moment or can't do it in a way which is scalable. So, for instance, I'm farming sustainably and I'm producing a cheese, but the cheese is currently much more expensive than the equivalent industrially produced cheese. Well, Nestle can show some leadership they already are in sourcing from more sustainable sources. The problem for Nestle and for the farmers is that the price of the raw materials will go up yeah. if they source in a sustainable way and that's going to put the price of the food products up and then you're into market pressures to sell food you know, as cheaply as possible yeah. and then government's going to intervene to make sure that the polluter pays mm-hmm. and if the polluter paid for the damaging practices which are currently the norm then actually that would shift the balance of advantage in favour of the more sustainable practices and I'm sure that Nestle can lobby governments and policymakers and others to help shift that uh, economic dial yeah but we've been talking about this for a long time this this dilemma haven't we 
Well, I've certainly been talking about it for a long time. I mean, I've, why, I've why been, are things just not moving as quick as you know? I think people in the UK and all over the world have got used to cheap food. It's not yeah. really cheap. There's the price we pay now and the price we all pay later, either to our health mm-hmm. or the health of the planetary support systems. And that's beginning to catch up with us now. Yeah. Um, but price is a big driver, and I'm afraid we've just got used to dining out on the... Uh, the natural capital of the planet and uh, taking no heed of the future. And I think the young people now who are intuitively knowing that we can't go on as we are because they're very environmentally aware, are also worried about their health. Mm-hmm. And I think those two drivers are powerful drivers for change and they will eventually express themselves in food markets. Yeah, but you sound optimistic. Very optimistic. Yes, I think that we have to be optimistic because the decisive advantage of the farming practice change that I am advocating is that there is no alternative if we're going to avoid irreversible climate change and some kind of ecological and social catastrophe. We are already seeing the signs. We know that uh, climate change is happening. We know there's food insecurity. That We know there's migration. A lot of the driver behind that is food insecurity. Yeah. We're seeing rates of cancer and other diseases which weren't common in the past rocketing. These all, in one way or another, go back to the changes in farming and food systems practice which have gone on during my lifetime. We have to put that right. The need to produce more with less, the need to protect soils, the need to reduce water consumption, the need to treat farmers with respect and to help them thrive, the need to move from a system based on chemistry to one that's based on biology. And these were the dominant themes coming throughout the the two days here. We heard some really interesting examples of technology and collaboration that's helping to solve some of these challenges. Uh, During the breakout session looking at water stewardship, you had James Lomax from the UN Environment Programme telling us about the sustainability rice platform which is well worth checking out when you've got a moment uh, we all know rice here in the west but it's actually the, the daily staple for more than 3.5 billion people uh, accounting for 19 percent of dietary energy globally it's a crop that provides livelihoods for more than a billion people and it's produced on 160 million hectares by 144 million smallholders amazing numbers uh, and the most incredible bit is that rice uses between 34 and 43 percent of the world's irrigation water for production and it's responsible for up to 10% of global methane. Uh, James talked about methods that can save up to 30% of water in the production process and incentivising those farmers that are taking things seriously. Of course, there's, you know, there's a need to scale things up so that all big food companies engage in the programme and start finding the same sort of efficiencies. There was certainly a call for Nestle to follow in the footsteps of the likes of Mars, uh, which committed to ensure all of its Uncle Ben's rice, uh, for example, is produced using some of the methods encouraged by that, that platform that James talked about. Uh, There's also interesting work being done by the likes of Google, as you might expect. Uh, For example, here's what Mikhail Bakker at Google had to say about how its big data capability might support some of the food challenge conundrums. So we have a variety of satellite images that we take on a daily basis, and we have a historic collection of that as well. And what you can do, for example, with the deforestation, you can compare a picture of a rainforest today with what it was a day prior or two days prior. And then you also determine the difference between what we have today versus what you had a day before. By working together with the WRI, the World Resources Institute in Washington, DC, we ultimately created the Global Forest Watch platform. So you now can have available on your fingertip anybody around the world who had to almost follow life to deforestation around the world. So what we've done, we brought together our assets 
the uh, global satellite images with our big data technology to help an organization like WRI to make this issue of the deforestation readily accessible to anybody who's interested in that. A very similar solution is actually thinking about illegal fishing. So we know around the world of where the areas are that you cannot fish. Trailers will actually send out satellite images as well, particularly to, so people can actually track where a specific boat is. By combining those two data sets, you can ultimately follow where actually fisher boats and fishermen are fishing, and you can work with actually national governments if actually fishing is taking place either out of season or in protected areas. So that is actually a use case that is being actually deployed as we speak as of today. The second area we're very interested in is actually thinking through how might you help individuals to make better food choices as well. And really thinking through both the data platforms, thinking about the devices, your phone, the wearables, the swallowables, and actually thinking through as well what data would you ultimately bring together in order to help individuals to make better food choices. And it's really interesting as well is that a couple of years ago we developed the, uh, the contact lens that can measure the glucose level of your eye tier. <coughs> so that is being further developed and it's going to be obviously a great tool for those who are suffering from diabetes. You no longer have to stick yourself multiple times a day by just wearing the contact lens. You can actually follow your glucose level on an ongoing basis. So we believe that over the years to come, this ecosystem of wearables, swallowables, and the big data platforms are going to be significantly further developed. Big food gets a big rap. Companies like Nestle are big beasts with big power and influence, and there's always a temptation to bemoan a lack of action or that the company's not doing enough to help solve some of the issues being presented at an event like this. Uh, it's something I put to Duncan Pollard, the Assistant Vice President of Stakeholders Engagement in Sustainability at Nestle, the man responsible for putting on the event. Uh, here's what he had to say. Consumers today, uh, younger generations, see things differently. The best educated generation is coming through now. I think they just have different expectations, uh, yeah. and, and that manifests itself in terms of... Um, well, everyone, I think, wants to know where their food's coming from, but there's an expectation that it's produced close to nature and close to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and <clears throat> if it's big food, it's a factory, and there's a... Immediately, mm. you know, I, I think that, um, that that puts a doubt in people's mind. Um, mm. I think also, you know... The food industry, the packaged food industry that that, that Nestle is part of, has perhaps been poor at explaining what its role in in society is. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's we've heard over the last few days that um, you know the the how we now over fifty percent of the world's population is uh, is in cities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as the world's population increases through in the next 20 years uh, that even the proportion of people in cities is going to is going to increase and i think that there was a uh, there was a a fact put on, or or a projection put on the the screen uh, this afternoon suggesting that by 2050 66% of people will live in big cities i think there must be some definition between big cities and cities but yeah. but nevertheless it just shows now, cities could not e- exist without packaged food. Sure. Yeah. People do not have the time or the mm. space to have a cow or a, 
mm. chickens in their backyard or cultivate all of the food that's needed. So, so um, you know, <laughs> that's a reality. So, you know, yeah. we have to do a better job. Um, but, but, of course, uh, we've, we've got to do a better job of, of delivering the kinds of food that people now want yeah. and and you know one of those that we talk about kitchen cupboard here um our food business only wants to use ingredients that people would ordinarily find in their kitchen cupboard mm. Mm. so all of the ingredients that we've used in the past which are there for you know legitimate reasons we we want to make sure that when you buy a packet of food it 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 can stay in your shelf in your you know for a few months or whatever, you know, yeah. it doesn't have to be used immediately. It doesn't have to go into the fridge. It can go on the shelf. Yeah. These, 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 all, all these uh, additives that have been put in to, you know, for for these reasons of of, uh, of giving shelf stable food and and giving it a long shelf life that that extends its its use. Um, okay, we've got to use different. We've got to reformulate the products. We've got to find different ways of doing that, and and that may well be through additions of more spices and uh, you know th th those kind of things so so um i think there's a bit of that but we've also got to be um better at telling the stories of the realities so there's a big push there's a big concern about food waste yeah good examples were used uh you go into at least in let's say in this part of the world europe north america as well Customers expect to see perfectly formed fruit and vegetables in their shops. Yeah. What happens to the imperfectly shaped and formed vegetables mm. and fruit? Well, actually, well, that's where the processed food industry comes in because yeah. we use those. Yeah. And yeah. we haven't told that story. No, no, no. If we didn't exist, there'd be more food waste. So there's all, you know, there's yeah. all sorts of things that we could say, but we've never stood up and said them. Well, is the challenge, and we talked a lot about challenges over the last two days, and there's a, there's, a, there's a whole heap of them, but is another challenge the fact that awareness of some of the issues that we've been talking about, whether it's food waste, whether it's um, poor agricultural practice, that consumers are not really aware of them yet. And as soon as they become more aware of them, there'll be more pressure on companies like Nestle to actually fix some of this stuff. Well, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I, that's that's for sure. Mm. And there's a big job. Yeah. And it's going to take us a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you, but you sit here now and you're on the start of the journey, right? I mean, this is this is what it's all about. Well, it's, you know, there was a very interesting panel session uh, uh, this morning because uh, we were talking about something that uh, I've been trying to get off the ground. We're getting off the ground. We're working on quite well now is the fact that... Um, a considerable number of uh, the smallholder farmers that are supplying us with core crops like coffee and cocoa have actually got poor diets and and poor uh, nutrition and, uh, and and poor availability of food. So they're short of food for several months of, of the year. And there's a whole re series of reasons uh, mm -hmm. for that. And um, the dominant uh, approach to improvement in uh, supply chains and commodities over the last 10 or 15 years has been certification which is focused upon improving the environmental performance improving in some ways the social performance nowhere does it check what is the 
nutrition status and the, the food security of, of farmers. Right. And so we're going around and uh, training uh, farmers on the correct way to uh, uh, prune their crops and improve the productivities of, of coffee or, or, or deal with pests and, and use uh, agrochemical products. Um, and, and yet there's a legitimate question. What's the, what's the best way to make a successful coffee farmer? improve the quality and the productivity of the crop or make sure that coffee farmer is not hungry. That's absolutely right, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, so mm. we kind of left the discussion saying maybe we've been, we've been for legitimate and justifiable reasons. There's a lot of things to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But have we been focusing on some things which are at a higher level and, and, and we should be fixing some of the basics? Yeah, because if your farm is not well, then... The last thing he's going to be thinking about is the crops he's going to sell to you. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, there's a never-ending <laughs> list of things yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, we've got to keep looking and questioning and, and uh, recalibrating what we think are the priorities. Yeah, which I guess this type of event is perfect for. Which is this type of... Precisely, precisely. And it validates other ideas, I guess. Precisely. I mean, what's, what's your kind of key takeaways from the last couple of days? The interconnectedness of, uh, of everything adds a degree of complexity. Um, yeah. And, and that, that could um, lead to a degree of paralysis. Uh, I think... And, and I, go to, I go to a few of these kind of con- conferences. This is the, the third conference that I've been to this year alone on food systems. Someone came up to me um, during the day today and said, actually, you know, what was different about this one was that um, there were enough companies present, present that um, you were, there, was a, there was always a focus on what's the action? What are we going to do on Monday morning? Yeah, and I think that's perhaps what uh, what companies bring bring to it a bias for action and a need yeah. to need to what can we do and, and how do we operationalize this great idea but how do we take it and what what does that mean for us? Yeah, but you seem like an optimist because there's, a, there's <laughs> been a, 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 you know there's been a lot of doom mongering over the last couple of days, lots of statistics thrown up about the, how big this challenge is. Yeah, but you can't get too bogged down in that. Because well, that's what that, yeah exactly. Yeah. So so that's. Uh, I guess that's the the place that companies come in. It comes back to the activism part of yeah. uh, of things, you know. And uh, um, a former boss of mine, um, who actually brought me here to Nestle, Jose Lopez, he used to say, "I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm, a, I'm an activist." Okay, there you go. Well, listen, I'm going to let you get on. Go and get a well-earned beer. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Duncan. All right. Brilliant. The second day here kicked off by focusing on the importance of nutrition, not only when it comes to farmers and food companies producing and selling more food that is actually good for us, but also in releasing the pressure of the environmental impact of the entire system on the planet. Uh, But it's also about considering how our food system actually gets the right nutrition to the people that need it the most. Far too many people just aren't getting anywhere near the right amount of good stuff, which has so many far-reaching problems from pressures on healthcare systems to education to economic development. 
Heiko Schipper, uh, Nestle's head of nutrition, said that the focus on nutrition was how Nestle started in the first place 150 years ago when Switzerland was uh, a relatively poor country with high infant mortality. Uh, and along came this pharmacist, Oi uh, Nestle, who wanted to use his knowledge to save the kids around him. And uh, he came up with a solution to help kids that couldn't be breastfed. Uh, and basically, these, these kids were given adult food instead of breast milk. And he came up with the first combination of, of milk from the Alps and cereals and nutrients and, and this easy-to-digest formula to save the lives of infants. And that's how it all started. And the rest of Heiko, uh, his presentation, focused on Nestle's purpose and how that shifted in recent years from being the world's biggest food and drinks company to today being a nutrition, health and wellness company, a journey that's kind of started and it's still on that journey today. At the heart of this is a nutrition profiling system which Nestle puts all of its products through to establish just how good or bad they are. And it's boosted investment in R&D from 1.5% to 1.9% to find ways to make all of its products more healthy. So that's reducing sugar, reducing salt, saturated fats, at the same time making these products still taste great. So really really tough stuff no mean feat by any stretch of the imagination but an absolute necessity given the huge challenges the world faces 795 million people go to bed hungry 155 million children are stunted they don't grow properly they're not able to reach their full potential 2.1 billion people are overweight or obese 2 billion have some sort of micronutrient deficiency so that's vitamin A or zinc or iron I mean huge numbers and these are the numbers I scribbled down during a presentation given by Jessica Fanzo a professor at John Hopkins University I caught up with her after she came off stage and started by asking her what we really mean when we talk about nutrition nutrition is is really more of the status of a person so do, do they have good nutrition and the main component of having good nutrition are the foods you eat the diversity the quality um the the nutrient density of those foods that impacts your body and gives you either a good nutritional status or a bad nutritional status right so food is the big centerpiece of nutrition because food contains all the nutrients that your body needs to function and survive and thrive so give us a snapshot of the current state of the planet. I mean, I just, just, you just come off stage yeah. here in Bevy, uh, listening to your presentation. I was thoroughly depressed, frankly. Yeah. Um, but give us a snapshot. Tell us what's happening. What's the, the state of play? So we have certain parts of the world that are suffering from undernutrition. So stunting, which is a chronic form of undernutrition. Right. And we have pockets of the world that are suffering from wasting which is acute malnutrition like the pictures you see of famine right which we growing up bob geldof made that very apparent right with live aid in ethiopia so that's a famine situation where you have children who are wasting away stunting is more that you're short for your age and you have potentially poor brain development so that we have this we have undernutrition in the world but then we have large swaths of overweight and obesity yeah In high-income countries, you see a lot of overweight and obesity, um, usually among poor populations. Mm. But interestingly, you're seeing a lot of overweight and obesity in low- and middle-income countries, and those tend to be wealthier populations who are moving to urban places, getting more access to food. So places like where? Brazil, Mexico, India, China. So China is almost eliminated under nutrition. 
but they're on this trajectory towards overweight and obesity now, which is a big risk factor for what's called non-communicable diseases, Mm. cardiovascular disease, diabetes, stroke. So to address those more complicated diseases, you need a functioning health system. And so in places where we're seeing a rise in non-communicable diseases like in Africa, if they don't have sufficient health systems, it's very complicated to treat yeah. certain diseases like diabetes, for example. Sure. And obviously one of the themes of, of this two-day event is sustainable agriculture. And I wonder what that correlation is between the ability to produce more food in a more sustainable way and then producing more nutrients and nutritious food yeah. that people need. Is it just that if, if people take care of what they're eating, they're just going to eat less? Or is there other things going on between that correlation? I think there's a lot. I mean, so when you look, when you just look at agriculture, the agriculture system has become incredibly efficient in some places, like the United States yeah. or Europe. Um, we're producing certain crops on a mass scale, mm-hmm. right? There's monocropping type systems. And that has been the mainstay for the world is to try to increase yields yeah. of the major crops like rice, wheat, and maize to be able to feed the growing population. What we didn't account for was how do we feed people well? Yeah, right. Right? So we, our agriculture systems have become less diverse, more homogenized um, globally. But then we have a lot of smallholder farms that have a lot of diverse uh, landscapes. Yeah. And they're supplying a lot of the world's nutrients. They're just not really invested in. They're a little bit forgotten about. Mm -hmm. And they're not producing enough to really um, get themselves out of poverty and to have a thriving livelihood. That's the issue with agriculture. Um, So our agriculture system is a bit, you know, it's complicated because we have different size farms all over the world and they're Mm. producing different things. We've got major cash crops like coffee and tea and cocoa and palm oil, which is grown a lot in Malaysia and Indonesia. And then we've got places that are growing major staple commodities and then a lot of these smallholder farms that are growing some of the more neglected, underutilized crops and horticulture and... Mm fish farming and things like that. Yeah. So. And one of your slides pointed to the impact, the environmental impact of something like beef farming. Yeah, huge. Um, but in terms of the nutritional debate, I mean, meat's good for you, isn't it? Or um, just not too much of it, is it? Not too much. I mean, red meat, red meat's high in saturated fat. Mm-hmm. Processed meats, so meats that have been salted or cured, you know, all the delicious bacons and sausages, those are not so great for you. Higher risk of colorectal cancer. Mm -hmm. So the processed meats and the red meats, we could probably do with much less of. Mm -hmm. Um, But lean meats are fine. You know, chicken, fish, shellfish, very low on the chain, very healthy. As you said, in the the U.S., people have meat all every day all, all the day. time and they, they don't even think twice about yeah a lot yeah bodies but also the environmental impact i think it's changing with the younger generation right so a lot mm. more people are going towards vegetarian or vegan or more sustainable diets but overall your middle america is yeah. eating a lot of meat yeah and i wonder about that statement about the younger people and do do we put too much pressure on this younger generation to to 
to help solve this problem? I mean, yeah, they are more interested than perhaps our generation, mm. but is there enough of them getting interested in it? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think, I don't know if we're putting so much pressure on them. I think it's more self-induced. It's something that they want. You know, the yeah. millennials are a really interesting hmm. kind of inspirational group of young people. I mean, they're very, um, this, they're very self-assertive and they know what they want in the world. It's much different than, you know, the generation I grew up in, the generation X. We were like the slackers, right? <laughs> um, I think, so I think there is pressure for them. My worry is that they are going to be dealt um, a hand that is going to be incredibly complicated with climate change. So there's a, these messes that we've made geopolitically, climate-wise, in our efficiencies and technologies. Um, that's going to be complex for them to unravel, and they're going to need to be really thinking very differently about solutions a lot of kind of more system solutions, which we growing up as scientists weren't really exposed to system science. They're going to have to be thinking across a lot of what different... Do you, what do you mean when you say that? Well, like, you know, we saw earlier today there's talks about vitamin A supplementation. Yeah. That's not going to solve stunting mm. at all, if anything, right? Stunting is one of these complicated nutritional outcomes that involves the food system, delivering nutritious food. It involves the education system. Mm -hmm. People who are more educated have more knowledge and wherewithal to provide for their children. It's going to require a functioning health system, a sound political stability type system. So, So young people are going to have to be thinking broadly across systems and how these interact. A great example, Ebola. Mm-hmm. Take Liberia. They got hit by Ebola. So there was a shock to the health system. They weren't prepared for it. Mm-hmm. And what happened is that ricocheted onto another system, the food system. So in Liberia, they grow a lot of palm oil. When Ebola hit, they quarantined the capital. No one could leave. So no one could go out and work in the palm fields. Yeah, right. And their whole major cash crop of that country was destroyed. So a health system impact can have another impact on a system. A lot of the young people are going to have to start thinking about these kind of ricocheting effects of systems. Yeah. And obviously the the solutions, as has been mentioned a number of times throughout these two days, is that there's so many different solutions and they're all going to be required. There's no panacea. And in terms of Mm -hmm. who provides those solutions, obviously there's business and I wonder what you know the role of a company like Nestle has to play in yeah. in this I mean how do you how do you see it and are they doing enough and, and what, what's your view yeah I mean if you just take the food system you have some in the academic community in the nutrition community particularly that say we shouldn't engage with business there's yeah. too many conflicts of interest if we don't engage with business, we are completely missing out yeah. because they control a lot of the food system and the movement of food around the world. Mm. I mean, Nestle is feeding a lot of people. Yeah. And to just say we're not going to engage with Nestle, okay, well, right. you lose then. Mm. You're never going to provide any solutions because they are such an important player in the food system. Yeah. 
But to me, government has to go hand in hand with business. Anyone working in a country, let's take Kenya, I used to live in Kenya. The Kenyan government has the right to, to know who is working in their country, delivering what and where. Mm. And they should have the authority to be able to hold everyone accountable that's working in their country, yeah. right? We don't see that right now. Government plays sort of a back seat role. And it's not, it's, it, they can become the stewards of the food system. Yep. They can ensure that business is doing what they should be doing to deliver healthier food, that the UN is working effectively and not fighting and instead mm. coordinating. The NGOs are working under the purview of what the country wants, right? So I think it's up to the governments to really shepherd everyone in the food system and ensure that things are being done ethically and sound and what is needed for their countries. Yeah, we've seen pockets of that, haven't yeah. we? But not anything that's really going to, you know, enable that shift. I mean, in the UK, we've had, you know, sugar taxes, but governments are so scared of treading on the toes yeah. of business. Yeah. That's where you, you, you think things need to need to change yeah absolutely i mean governments need to govern right and they need to govern everyone who's working in 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 the food system and while you know private sector nestle has done good things there's also been some bad practices and mm -hmm. we all know that mm -hmm. and they will admit it as well right but you know they've done a lot of good things too so there has to be some trust, some forgiveness, mm -hmm. and we have to work together moving forward. It has to be done, or otherwise it's, nothing's going to change. As we touched on during that chat with Jessica, the focus on the consumer is a really interesting one. Farmers, producers, retailers, they're not going to be incentivized to adopt more sustainable approaches to agriculture unless the consumer market is excited by it and we know that the new generation are more interested in food they want to know where you know where their foods come from they want to know what's in it um they want to feel good about it and they'll probably take a photo of it and put it on their instagram account but how do you really change mindsets and behaviors at the scale needed to transform this food system one man that has some ideas is Olivier Ullier from the University of Aix in Marseille. I grabbed him for a quick chat as he came off stage, having given a presentation on how to engage the consumer's brain. I would make one step back and say, do people consider sustainability when they buy products? Mm. And I think this is the key question, because generally when um, I work with organizations, uh, companies that helping them uh, design campaigns to promote sustainable products, uh, healthier products. Um, it is very often a given that people would be searching for this kind of products. Uh, however, for a lot of consumers, they don't know they exist or they don't know that these products uh, can have a positive influence on their health and their well-being. And I think that uh, there is the, the whole communication ahead that for a lot of companies is focusing on the product itself rather than what the product can do to improve people's lives. Okay. And I think this is crucial uh, to understand uh, what kind of messaging, what kind of wording, uh, images, analogies, examples ought to be shared when we communicate about a new product uh, that would be sustainable so that people are aware not first of a product, but what the product can do for them. Mm -hmm. So I would say action, positive action over purely 
description or promotion of a product. What is really interesting is also um, that in a strategy for a company that is working on the functionality, on the benefits of consuming the product rather than the product itself, uh, trust is built with the consumers. And uh, I, think, I think that is key. And I think a lot of the efforts that Nestle is doing uh, on, on the front of foods for babies and uh, engaging the mothers, uh, showing how the products, uh, not only at the nutritional level, but also in uh, improving the lifestyle of the moms. Uh, and why not, um, I mean, in improving the lifestyle of the moms, and why just talking about the moms, the parents, um, how they facilitate um, the eating behavior, uh, how some findings from Nestle that uh, when a kid rejects food at first, if parents keep on trying six, seven, eight, nine times, the kid might like the food at some point. Um, and this is often the case with part of a food that is healthier, I would say, less sugary. And uh, these are research and findings that Nestle has put forward that are uh, not only helping people, but also helping the brand, because then the consumers trust the brand a lot more, uh, realizing that it's not just about selling a product, it's about improving your life. Valerio Nanini then concluded the day earlier by giving us some insight from Nestle's science team about how it's developing the personalization of nutrition. So under, understanding individual profiles and what each individual needs to make them healthy, because, you know, we're all different. So you can imagine in the future a smartwatch type device tracking what's actually going into your body. And you could feed into that your latest blood check results your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your iron levels. And then you could feed so many elements into this. Imagine having a personalized recipe book, which, you know, backed up by data and intelligence you've already submitted, serves up recipes for the food that you love and you need. And it's all right saying that we want to be healthier, but what does that really mean? And what is it that you actually need that, that makes you healthier? Uh, Valerio admits that despite having the ideas, he has no idea how this will come to fruition yet. And again, they're going to need partners. Nestle will need partners to make it you know, happen, whether it's Apple, whether it's Samsung, whether it's Amazon. Um, it was certainly a presentation that left plenty in the room with food for thought, excuse the pun, uh, about what's possible in, in the future. So there we have it. Uh, I'm about to leave Vevi and head back to the UK. And my head is a bit frazzled, really. So many ideas, so many inspiring stories of people with, with passion uh, that have started to, to realise their missions. Um, however, the, the two days were filled with, with numbers, big challenging numbers about the sheer size of, of what lies ahead. And it's scary. It, it feels so big. There's no doubt about that. These types of events are crucial. People need to meet. They need to work together. They need to get stuff done. As Duncan said, it, the, the bias of, of business coming together to having concrete ideas, but they really need to action them. Um, you need to provide that evidence. You need to grab that funding and you just scale these projects up and that's the way forward. Uh, and there's a you know, huge need for courage, something that was, was talked about again and again during the two days. Courage. After last week's show with, with Hampton Creek, 
um, it's easy to get carried away with what's possible. If you haven't listened to last week's show, then I really encourage you to do so if you've listened to this for the first time. Go and, go and check out Hampton Creek. We, we spoke to them last week. Um, but when you, you, know, you start to consider the need to feed the world's 7 billion people, something the likes of Nestle does day in, day out, you can't just turn the system off and reboot it when you've figured out the way forward. The wheels have to continue to turn. So making that transition just seems that much more difficult. I just, you know, I hope we're not talking about the same numbers and the same challenges in 5, 10, 15 years' time because we just can't afford to be. Anyway, that's it from me for another episode of The Better Business Show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Signing off here from Vevi. Uh, Join me next Monday when we'll bring you another great story of disruptive innovation. So until then, goodbye. Goodbye.